I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia, and I'm joined as I am every week by co-host Shannon Bond. Shannon, aren't you glad you're here in the studio and not in Davos? Yes, although it's almost as cold in New York, I would argue, as it might be in Switzerland. With worse skiing, but at least we have each other's company. That's true. Just a quick reminder to our listeners, you can enter to win a Kindle by going to ft.com forward slash alpha survey. Again, that's ft.com forward slash alpha survey. Tell us what you think of the show, what you want to hear more of, and if you leave us your email address, you just might win a brand new Kindle. And it's your last week to enter, so uh, everyone should go out and do that. Yes, please. Uh, but for now, let's get right on to today's show. First up, cybersecurity threats in 2016. The FT's investigations correspondent, Kara Scannell, is going to come in to talk to us. And after that, we're going to talk about the market freakout. It is ongoing. It is calamitous. It is catastrophic. Or maybe it's none of that. Maybe it's just fine. We'll talk to Matt Klein of FT Alphaville. And then finally, the North American International Auto Show is happening in Detroit right now. Robert Wright is going to come talk to us about the relationship between tech companies and car makers. Stick around. Lots of fun stuff today. First up on the show, cybercrime, data breaches, workplace shootings. These things all obviously get big headlines when they happen, but are companies taking them seriously enough? Are they secure? Kara Scannell, investigations correspondent of the FT, is here to talk about this in an Alpha Chat exclusive Kara, we're very excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. Top billing, okay? You reported this out. You went somewhere to talk about this with people who seem to know a lot about it. Uh, where'd you go? So I went to um, meet with the folks at K2 Intelligence. They're a security investigations and cybersecurity firm. And I spoke with um, Ray Kelly, the former commissioner of the New York City Police Department, yep. and Austin Burgless, a former special agent at the FBI in charge of cybersecurity and cyber investigations. And they kind of give us a big overview of what businesses should be worried about this year. And it is both physical security and cybersecurity, which is, you know, they, they actually kind of meld together when you think about it. So dating back to you know September 11th, uh, there was a lot of concern, right, over over security. Obviously, physical security kind of being the biggest thing. In that time, like what has happened? What has happened to those plans and policies and ideas that everyone was saying? Oh, you know, we're going to make sure that you know we know we have a plan. We have a plan to whether it's to deal with an emergency or a data breach. I mean, right after 9-11, you saw a lot of companies, especially here in New York City, and especially within the financial sector, run out all these business continuity plans, these emergency response plans, giving everyone like the 411 of what you're supposed to do if something happens. And what we've seen is a lot of complacency among businesses. You know, memories kind of become short and things don't get updated. So some plans that companies have in place are actually in three ring binders, not accessible on the internet. It's just really out of date and people don't update it because it's a cost factor. You just kind of forget about it in that sense. 
But that's changing because now companies are starting to say, you know, should our employees be armed because of workplace shootings? Should we hire armed security guards? And these are questions that come up increasingly, at least according to the former commissioner, Ray Kelly, you know, that these are discussions companies are having today. He is not an advocate of anyone having armed employees, <laughs> just for the record. Okay. <laughs> I guess one of the other things, too, is just that the technology has advanced so much. Uh, in the last 15 years, you know, when we talk about the Internet of Things, a lot of times we focus on like our refrigerator telling us that the milk is out of date or something like that. This actually is an issue for companies too, though, right? I mean, the thing with companies is you have a mobile workforce. You know, they have employees who travel a lot, need to access their systems remotely. A lot more people become decentralized and want to work from home. So, it, you know, you have people who have, you know, I have two cell phones, an iPad, a computer at home, a company laptop, and my desktop. So those are all access points into the company systems. And when you multiply that among thousands of employees, you realize just how many entry points there are into a network. The FT gave you all that. I'm getting shortchanged here. <laughs> Some of that's mine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you went to report at K2 and you recorded some of your conversations. This first clip is with Austin Berglas. Uh, what did you guys talk about? Set it up for us. Well, Austin and I were talking about what some of the biggest threats are facing companies this year from a cyber perspective. And, you know, one of them is malware, which is just, you know, the ability to inject code into a company and be able to access their systems that way. The interesting thing about malware, which has been around forever, is that now some of them come with like 24-hour help desk. And they're kits that are made to sell for a layman. You don't have to be a hacker in order to use them. You just have to buy it. And it comes with the booklet, so to speak. And it walks you through how to do a hack. This is like the stuff that was used to steal credit for card information from retailers, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of these things are the same tools. It's just, it's become that much easier to use and it's become, you know, the, the ability to do it more widespread is something that, you know, is part of the evolution of this. I mean, one of the other big areas that we've seen is, um, or that they've talked about is having people impersonate, you know, getting access through to an executive's email through maybe malware or a phishing exercise, and then demanding a money transfer somewhere else within the company. And then through that, you know, there's not a check a lot of times. So then people will, the treasurer may transfer money to a bank account in Hong Kong, even though the CEO did not really want that. It was a hacker who used him. And the, the other big thing this year is ransomware. Ransomware. Ransomware, where people will break into the systems, either outright steal the information, the data, and then say, if you want it back, you have to pay a ransom, or we're going to either destroy it or post it publicly. And you can imagine the types of information that they're stealing. It's all valuable. It's all stuff that people don't want known. Or if you're a consulting firm or a law firm, you certainly don't want your client's information exposed. And the interesting thing that we've seen there, and this is what Austin was saying, is like once you're able to get into a system and access emails and verify who people are, it's really easy to exploit that down the road. I asked Austin who who were the perpetrators behind this, who were the hackers, and this is what he had to say. Mostly from uh, Eastern European, uh, loosely affiliated criminal organizations, cyber-based. The targets are anybody. They have the ability now to cast a wider net. So if you look at a recent case like the JP Morgan case where they stole 40 million email addresses, what do they need 40 million email addresses for? Well, here's a perfect example. Now you can monetize those 40 million email addresses, load them up with ransomware, and send them out. You have a list of 40 million legit emails, and now your chances of getting someone to actually click on that ransomware just went up. 
that 40 million, if you get 1% of the individuals to click on that link, you've got 1% of the 40 million locked up and they're going to pay you ransom. Carol, what's interesting about that is that it makes me wonder if this successful breach is also going to serve as an incentive for other people using ransomware. Well, these guys were caught and have been charged. So I think it's a cost-benefit analysis to any <laughs> hacker, how, how quickly they can monetize that, right. how far away they can stay from authorities. Uh, but there's probably a lesson there that you can get caught and the long arm of the U.S. does actually work sometimes and bring people back to face their charges. Okay. But I think it, it just shows the ease with which anyone can do this. And it's actually not that hard to get into systems. How are the hackers getting into systems? Like what what's happening here, you know, even in a case where a company may think they have preventative measures in place? That's the thing. Companies are spending hundreds of millions of dollars, depending on how big they are, on cyber defenses. It's finally gotten through to the board of directors that this is an important issue. But nothing really, no matter how good your defenses are, the biggest problem that everyone says universally is employee error. So the statistic is something like 80% of breaches last year were caused by an employee clicking on a link that they were sent, either that was disguised in a way that seemed like it was coming from an internal company email or happened to be a viral video of a cat that they clicked on that actually enables someone to get into the system. And what we've seen on some of even these big breaches is that they're tricking the administrative personnel, the people who have the keys to the castle, and getting their accreditations, and then they can do whatever they want once they get in. One of the things I asked Austin was, what are some of the biggest problems that companies are doing that they can fix in order to prevent breaches? Last year, 99.9% of exploited vulnerabilities, the patch was made available over a year ago. It's basically if you go to work every day and you leave your back door open every single day and you're the largest house on the street, and one bad guy gets in there and he robs you, he's going to tell his friends and they're all going to come in your back door. It's the same way if you have a large organization and you're not patching and there's a known vulnerability on the street, China's going to know about it and Russia's going to know about it, uh, Iran's going to know about it, and then the organized criminals that are down the street are going to know about it. Okay. Interesting. So which economic sectors are most at risk and why? Well, the I mean, anyone in critical infrastructure is at risk. So, you know, you have the financial institutions, utilities, and all that. But one area for at least organized crime type of criminals is the health, healthcare sector because that information is so valuable. You can use the social security numbers, the um, address, the names, all the information that you get in a medical record, and you can exploit that in many different ways. And so, you know, for instance, on the black market, you can find credit card information for sale for a dollar, but a, someone's healthcare record can go for as much as $2,000. Oh. So that's why we've seen last year, especially health insurers were hacked kind of across the board. And in some of those instances, it's traced back to the Chinese, which are using it, you know, for their own, you know, social, economic and political purposes to learn about the U.S. and to learn about people. But it's also very easy to monetize that. Kara, what I took away from all of that was don't click on cute cat video links when they're sent to me by anonymous people. Or even people you think you know, because they could have hacked your friends. So let's oh hope no Alpha Chat listeners are going to start <laughs> sending you cat videos, Cardiff. Then I can't trust anybody. Uh, yeah, the lesson is don't trust anyone. And I don't think upgrade people your need software. to go overboard, but I think it's like you just have to be smart and actually read who has sent you the email because a lot of ways they trick people is they'll change a letter 
and it makes you think it's from someone you know, you know, a one to an uh, an L to a one or something. So you just have to be a little savvy about it. No, you scared us. We're shutting down. <laughs> We're finished. We're done. Kara Scannell, FT Investigations Correspondent. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Moving on. Markets have been freaking out since the year started. Here to discuss this, my colleague on Alphaville, Matthew C. Klein. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Carter. All right, look, you and Robin Wigglesworth, the FT's U.S. markets editor, did a preview of markets at the end of last year. Did you anticipate that in the first three weeks of the year, this would happen? I can't anticipate anything. That's why I put all my stuff in you know, passive index funds. But I guess the, 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 the broader answer is that what's happening now, I think, is, is in a lot of ways a continuation of things that have been happening gradually over the past couple of years where oh, really? you have a period of time where stock markets had been gaining tremendously both in the US in the US in particular but globally and then starting around the beginning of 2014 it essentially flatlined and this is true for a lot of risky assets high yield bonds have been doing extraordinarily well you get to sort of 2012 2013 they flatline commodities have done very well after the crisis you get sort of 2011 2012 they start to either stay flat or go down depending upon what okay but, but hold on are, are you saying that there's mm-hmm. a kind of seasonal component to what's happening with risky assets, with stocks, and with uh, high yield credit. Not seasonal. Like I think that, it's a part or... of a. I think there's something that's more fundamental going on. That's. I mean, people talk about like a freak out now, and it's true. There's been a very rapid drop recently. And if you look at, if you pay, if you care about the calendar, people say, oh, like it's the most, it's the sharpest drop in the start of the year. I mean, you know, the start of the year is sort of irrelevant. It's the number of days or whatever, but it, it is certainly a severe drop. But I think is more significant is if we if we sort of zoom out a little, you look at say since summer of 2014, you see, look at the way commodity prices have been getting hammered. You look at the way spreads on credit for either emerging market sovereigns or for particularly for corporations, uh, especially lower rated corporations have been widening tremendously. There's a whole lot of things that have been, in some ways, US equities have been sort of resisting the broader trend of uh, financial conditions tightening in a variety of ways. Until now, you're saying. Un- right. And in fact, if you did, if you pull up a very simple chart just showing the total returns from owning uh, American high-yield bonds and American stocks, there had been a gap for a while where stocks have been doing relatively well and bonds have been doing badly. And recently, stocks have caught up. So now we're essentially, you know, they match, which makes a certain amount of sense because if bonds come first, if, if a company is only earning, you know, $100 or whatever, then, and they owe, they have to pay $50 in debt service, you know, you'd expect that debt service be that comes before any uh, profits go shareholders. Okay, okay. So two primary causes are usually given for what's been happening since the start of the year and maybe at the end of last year. Okay, China and oil. All right. So I want to go quickly through each of these two things. Uh, China rebalancing, whatever you want to call it. What's happening there, and how much can we expect it to continue influencing market activity throughout the rest of the world? So what's happening in China, I think, is a very big and complex story. But again, it's also a slow-moving one, where if we think about what China has been going through an adjustment that started, you could say, at least back in, say, 2011 or even 2010, where in a period, especially after the, immediately after the crisis, they went on this big binge of investment and spending and infrastructure projects and buildings that maybe they needed, maybe they didn't, but they expanded a lot of capacity. And then they came to the conclusion that this was unnecessary. It was creating a lot of pollution. Uh, it was too much debt. And they've been gradually trying to adjust and change their model. And you can see that reflected in things like the prices of steel and coal and copper, things like the value of the Australian dollar. And that's been going down for a while, all of these things. 
oil, I think, is a more recent one, but it's also relevant. If you, I think it's in the past 10 years, about half of all the extra demand for oil has come from China, roughly. Uh, so clearly, even though they don't cons- they consume, I think, about 10% of the world's oil, so it's not huge by itself, but in terms of the incremental growth, I mean, that's clearly- So that's what's deal. happening on the demand side I, for I think oil. That, the supply side is surely helps. a part right. of I think it, that, too. I think that's part of it. That's right. In terms of the connection between markets recently and the whole issues of their currency and, and this uncertainty there, I'll be honest, I'm not really sure what the connection would be. I mean, in terms of the- I mean, China's connection to the U.S. is mostly that they are- uh, piece, an important piece of supply chain for a lot of U.S. imported goods. I would think sort of naively that if China's currency is going down and their economy is weakening, that would actually make U.S. goods cheaper and make things better for Americans. Might be a little different story if you're, say, supply industrial machinery in China, if you're in Germany, for example, rather than the U.S., but you haven't really seen that. I mean, one thing I've heard, which is plausible, is that general uncertainty emanating from China is leading people to just be more uncertain about everything that's risky, which sort of fits in with what we're seeing in other sure. asset markets. Hard to measure, but it certainly is a right. reasonable uh, possibility. Right. Uh, okay. Last uh, issue, policy. All right. Monetary policy, Janet Yellen finally raised rates. Markets doubting whether she can raise rates as quickly as the Fed has suggested it would this year. And then secondly, fiscal policy might play a role uh, in the story this year. What's happening there? So starting with the fiscal policy, one thing that's interesting is that ever since, again, I think it's roughly 2010, U.S. fiscal policy and fiscal policy in most rich countries has been relatively more restrictive than it was before. Uh, You had in the U.S., for example, you had sequestration of government funds. You had various tax increases, things that were associated with stimulus were rolling off. And then you had also tightening at the local and state level where they couldn't run deficits for uh, legal reasons. And that was a steady drag for years. That might start finally start to change. We've already seen a little bit of state and local spendings picked up a little. I mean, in terms of the impact on growth, it's so far small, but you know, it's it's the directional change is is nice. There was a deal recently. Yeah, let me just by the way, really quickly explain why this matters. All right, contraction at the state and local level matters because teachers and other people who work for the state lose their jobs. Okay, the state that offers benefits on its citizens and things like that. Those things have to be cut back. Infrastructure projects are cut back. All of these things have a big kind of self-perpetuating impact on the economy until that turns around. That's right. Which is what you're saying might now happen. That's right. Or I mean, it has been happening a little bit. Uh, So that change of direction is positive. At the federal level, there was a deal uh, back in October to essentially undo part of the sequestration and and boost defense spending and other forms of domestic spending, avoiding any debt limit fighting for the next couple of years. Uh, there was some stuff to keep taxes from going up further in certain categories. So, I mean, what the total impact of that is on growth, I mean, it's not huge, but it's sort of a positive change of direction. So that, that's that's a that's a positive thing. You're talking about monetary policy is sort of the other side of the coin. I mean, at the time that rates actually were increased, when we were here last time talking about this, nothing really happened in the markets because it was so well telegraphed. But there's an interesting argument to be made that the market's perception that monetary policy is going to tighten actually goes back significantly further. And that actually maps on pretty closely to what's happened with things like the dollar and commodities and spreads. And there's this couple of academics who created this this measure of uh, monetary policy. And basically, they said that it hit bottom in the summer of 2014 and started going up ever since then, which actually does fit in pretty well what we've seen in, in risk markets. And so if you think it's, it's there's more to monetary policy than just sort of the announced official short rate, then you could plausibly say that this is a big reason why financial conditions have tightened more broadly. Okay. Shannon, how much are you freaking out about markets? Well, I, that was actually, actually my question to turn back to the two of you is the Amelia Mahasek question, which is that sort of for the average person, 
you know, how much does this matter? Should we kind of follow that advice? Just don't look at your 401k. Don't worry too much about this. Or are there ways that like we are going to feel some of this like in our everyday lives without, you know, bothering to log in and see exactly how much value my retirement has dropped right. in the past three weeks? Good question. Matt. I mean, my take is that you should not care about it. I mean, if it's a signal there's going to be some kind of recession and job loss, then that will matter for you insofar as there's recession and job loss. But at the end of the day, I mean, these are small fluctuations. There's a lot of time before you actually retire. It's If anything, this is a better opportunity to be accumulating assets gradually because valuations are relatively lower than they were. Right. Do so not freak out. Cheap. <laughs> do not freak out. Don't do the thing where you sell after the stock market went down. Right. Okay. Keep your, you know, whatever, whatever level-headed plan you have until you get to retirement, keep that plan in place. Okay. Matt Klein, thanks as always, man. Thanks for having me. And finally, on the show's last segment, the relationship between car makers and tech companies, is it combative or is it cooperative or a bit of both? Here to talk about that is the FT's industry correspondent, Robert Bright. Robert, you've just come back from Detroit. Yes, I have. Yep. What were you doing always, there? Always exciting in January. <laughs> what were you doing there? Well, I was there to cover the annual North American International Auto Show. And, and obviously, a lot of the talk there this year was uh, not about the cars people are actually buying. Those are mostly SUVs and things like that, and, and nobody's really interested in talking about them. Everybody was talking about cars that people aren't buying, like uh, autonomous vehicles and uh, electric battery Cars that people vehicles. are not buying because yes. they're still too expensive? Well, in the case of autonomous vehicles, because they don't work yet and none exist. <laughs> and in the case of electric vehicles, because, yes, they're far too expensive when uh, when gas is $2 a gallon. Is there a sense in Detroit among the automakers that uh, Silicon Valley has stolen some of their thunder when it comes to sort of the innovations we're seeing in electric cars and in the push towards self-driving? I think there was a feeling at one point that some of the Silicon Valley companies were going to steal their thunder. And that definitely is part of what has encouraged car makers to talk an awful lot more about their efforts towards electric vehicles, their efforts towards autonomous driving. Yes, that's certainly the case. But at the same time, I mean, really, what I've been writing about in the aftermath of the show is really how I think the relationship's fundamentally changing here because I think what's happened has been a little bit like if you've tried something that you've seen somebody else doing and, and you think it looks easy. So the car makers tried tech and it can't be so hard. We've got lots of people who do software and they and they tried doing infotainment software and and they made really really bad infotainment software what is infotainment software so this is this is for the the vehicle stereo systems and stuff like that so ford um, went and made their own infotainment system and and it really sucked very very badly so i think the car companies have realized that tech companies people who make iphones and things like that probably better at that kind of thing than they're ever going to be. So there's been a bit of humility from that side. From the side of the technology companies, I think they thought, well, you know, we're good at making things. We're good at rolling out products fast. We'll make cars. No problem. Uh, I think Google have now gone quite a long way down the road trying to make a car, and they've discovered that making a car is actually quite hard. So they're now running around looking for a partner. So so the two sides are now sort of at this moment of, of humility, in a way, was, about the whole process. Was this humility induced because they sensed a threat 
In other words, the idea that cars, uh, car makers traditionally had sort of total control over the entirety of the process of putting together a vehicle. And that if they see the necessity of having to outsource things to third parties, they start to worry that they lose control over that process and that that threatens them somehow. Can you talk about that for a little bit? That's something that Sergio Marchione, the chief executive of Fiat Chrysler, brought up at the show. And he, his comments got a lot of attention. He said that car makers risked the process of what he called disintermediation. If they lost control over the powertrain of the vehicles, the actual engines and transmissions and so on, he said that that took away a critical part of the value chain. Now, I was there when he said those things. I think part a big part of why he said them is that Sergio Marchione's theory of everything in the car industry is that somebody ought to buy Fiat Chrysler. And this was another reason why somebody <laughs> needs to buy Fiat Chrysler, because the whole industry faces this um, this existential threat. I think the feeling of most people would be that car makers are going to retain ultimate control. That There's been an awful lot of boosterism about the role of technology in these things. And I think people are forgetting that cars are big, complicated mechanical objects. They're going to remain big, complicated mechanical objects. And as such, car makers are going to retain control over the ultimate process. There's going to be a lot more involvement from technology companies along the way. The car makers are going to have to learn how to work with technology companies. The technology companies are probably going to want a better deal than a lot of suppliers to the car industry have got at the moment. But but ultimately, I think making something as complicated as a car is going to remain a speciality of car companies. Let alone all the regulatory issues, of course, which is what Silicon Valley has run up against, right? Well, this is precisely what the I heard somebody from Google talk at a conference just after the auto show about all the issues they'd come up against and just realizing that, you know, if your iPhone crashes, you know, nobody dies. You know, if if, if you can't build cars to the same kind of regulatory standard as you can build as you can build a phone. And Google, for instance, has been having to get its systems for getting users to interface with car infotainment systems has had to have them cleared with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. And I think they've had a little bit of a shock doing that because they've discovered that, you know, there are real serious safety issues and the U.S. government is not just going to let you put whatever you want in the car. So so this is this has been a really fairly bruising learning experience, I think, for both sides. And, and I think we're now working towards a new accommodation. One last question. What do you think these partnerships will eventually look like? Will it be a situation where if Google finds a partner to implement its self-driving technology, that that means that no other automakers can partner with Google, and so they'll have to work with Apple or with another tech company? Will they be one-to-one? Will we have a situation where car makers uh, can are free to choose, but so, but so are tech companies, where they can say, well, we've designed navigation software, we've designed an infotainment system that now can be put into not just Chrysler's, but also Ford and other kinds of cars? Well, I think that's an excellent question, and I think the answer is still unknown. I heard people from Google asked about this at the Automotive News Conference after the auto show, and, and that really is a big question. Is it going to be an open source kind of thing where you're going to have a Google operating system for driverless cars? Or is it going to be something where Google works specifically with Ford or something like that? That really isn't still clear because I don't think we quite know the nature of the operating systems they're going to develop, how 
independent they're going to be of the car's own systems? That, that's a big question. For the moment, what you saw is an awful lot of car makers in, on the infotainment side are saying, we're going to offer Android Auto, which is Google's system for Android phones, and Apple CarPlay. So people are hedging their bets and offering both of those. Robert Wright, FT Industry Correspondent. Thanks for coming in, man. Thank you. And as always, here for the follow-up segment is Amelia Bahasik. Amelia, how are you? I'm good, Cardiff. I'd like to be in Davos with the You'd Davos, like to be in Davos people, you know, <laughs> just to see. There's a song about people like that. Anyway. <laughs> you, you didn't get enough of a flavor of what Davos was going to be like anyways from our conversation last well, week with Jillian and Felix. That was enough for me. My, my conclusion was that it is it shows the best of humanity and the worst of humanity, that you can get all of these big brains, these really powerful people all in the one place, and you'd think they could solve the world's problems while they were there in the mountains. But instead – They'll be looking over each other's shoulders to see who else there is to talk to. What other celebrity is Leo DiCaprio looking in their direction? All that kind of thing. So I think I thought that uh, encapsulated everything about it. There, there is, I guess, one kind of unanswerable question, or maybe it's two questions that are related. One is, does anything actually get done at Davos, right? Does anything meaningful actually get done there? And then the second is, is the world a better place because something like Davos exists, because there's a place where each year a lot of important people get together to try to argue in favor of you know, their priorities or to find out what their priorities should be or something like that. I don't actually have a good answer to either of those questions. I think it'd be good to get Julian and Felix Salmon, who you had on last week, back in and ask them very specifically about this most recent Davos, whether they could see any of those conclusions come out of it. In other words, um, what got done and what is this going to do for the world? Yeah, exactly. I, you know, of course, the irony is with every Davos that there's some great calamity going on in the world at the same time as <laughs> they're all gathered in Switzerland. You know, we've got the oil price collapse and the markets today. But anyway, I admire Felix's capacity to sort of sniff at the caviar before he swallows it as well. <laughs> so I, can't, I think I want, to hear, I want to hear him come back and do some more name I, dropping and, you know, <laughs> sneer at it at the same I, time. Yeah, I, I think Felix is good about both going there and I'm sure he enjoys himself, but also being, I think, appropriately skeptical of a lot of the sort of ridiculous jargon that gets spouted there, a lot of the pretentiousness. I've always kind of enjoyed his work that comes out of Davos. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, particularly skeptical view of Klaus Schwab, the founder's, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, enterprise that he's built over all these decades. Right. From having essentially the biggest party in the world in January in the snow. Well, maybe the three <laughs> of us should go next year. I like well, the suggestion that they should move it to Greece, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, isn't uh, now isn't there an alphabet plan for an anti-Davos? We'd love to have something called Avos, which is capital A, capital V for Alphaville, and then OS, and do it somewhere else in the Swiss Alps as a kind of anti-Davos. So less pretension, more fun, and without without the without the idea that we're going to change the world, we'll just go there to like have a good time and discuss topics related to economics and finance. That we enjoy. I think that sounds fantastic. All you fantastic. need is a couple of big sponsors. Yeah. Yeah. That's your mission. 2016 Avos, <laughs> Alphaville overseas. <laughs> We're actually thinking about it seriously. What else did we talk about last week? Uh, the aging 
population. Yes, and, the economics of aging. That's mm, right. And I, in fact, I was thinking I would like to hear Matt talk more about different countries. He focused on Japan because, of course, that's a, a test case economy with the aging population and declining birth rate and all of those sorts of demographics. But I'd like to hear country by country what's going on. Because, you know, in Germany, for example, with the immigrants that are coming there that have joined the workforce, that's obviously changed the balance there. And that must be happening also in America with Mexican migration being net down. Right. I thought, I wonder, so are the new migrants from different countries in Latin America? Are they the ones that are taking up the slack? And there's that whole hidden workforce and I'm not sure how the statistics account for all of that. Okay. So maybe that's a, a good topic for this year to pay a little more attention to how recent waves of migration are going to alter the trajectory of various countries' demographics and also what it means for their economies. Yeah. And it changes, of course, the, uh, as you say, the demographics, but, you know, in Iran where you have this extremely young population and sanctions being lifted, what happens there? Will they now become uh, migrants? Will they be, will they have people from other Middle Eastern countries going to Iran because all of a sudden there's this healthy-ish economy right. in the Middle East. So I think it's a, such a fantastically interesting subject. So long as you don't migrate back to Australia, <laughs> we'll be happy to keep talking about <laughs> this Poor topic. Australia suffering brain drain, permanent brain drain. <laughs> <laughs> it started with you. <laughs> no, no, that's good of no, you The FC is definitely a beneficiary of a lot of that. Exactly yeah. right. Emilia Mahasek, the follow-up segment. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Cardiff. Thanks, Shen. Thank you. Cardiff, what are you reading? So I am recommending an interview with David Plotz. He's the CEO of Atlas Obscura. But the reason he's being interviewed is that his podcast, the Slate Political Gabfest, just turned 10 years old. It is still and has been for the entirety of its run the single best three people in a room just talk for an hour podcast. Totally agree. Um, one of the originals and still probably the best. That interview can be found at All Access and it's by Seth Resler with David Plotz, a Q&A. Well, it depends how much you want to geek out, but shortly the Office of Management and Budget will be releasing their annual report on the health, the cyber health of all of the government, you know, sectors like the Treasury Department, Justice Department, and it's kind of scary reading to see what's how people are not prepared, but it also gives you a little bit of an insight to what you should do for yourself. So this was a fun book I, I read. It was actually recommended to me from the FT Book Review. It's called Jack Reacher Said Nothing, Lee Child and the Making of Make Me by Andy Martin. And it's a book about the writing of a thriller novel where the author is basically hovering over and watching the author of this thriller novel called Make Me as he goes through and comes up with the process. And, and it's a very fun, interesting book. I've been reading an older book, The Life and Death of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs, uh, which is a great one for those of us who work here for the Financial Times in New York, because Jane Jacobs lived at the time she was writing the book on Hudson Street, where our office is, and a lot of the examples about what brings vitality to American cities are, are based in this street that we use every day. So it's been a, f a fascinating read and, and still very relevant more than 50 years after it was published. So this week I've started reading a book called Dark Money by Jane Mayer. She is a New Yorker writer who's been following the Koch brothers for many years. So far she's depicted this fantastic, you know, insider view of what is essentially a private political bank which has shaped politics, you know, for the last two decades in this country and bestowed unlimited amounts of money on their favoured candidates. 
very intriguing and it, it starts out by detailing the personalities inside the operation as closely as anybody ever has, I think. Shannon? I want to recommend a New York Times Magazine story from a couple weeks back. It's called The Trials of Alice Goffman by Gideon Lewis Krauss. It's a profile of a young sociologist who um, her recent book about West Philadelphia has caused a lot of controversy in the sociology community and a little more widely. It's, it, it's won some awards, but it's also sort of shed a light on debates within sociology over the role of the sociologist, over kind of what sociology should be, who gets to speak for other populations. And it's just a really fascinating uh, look at her and some of these wider concerns. Shannon, as always, you have way more stamina than I do. So why don't you close us out? Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Please give us a call and let us know what you thought of the show. 917-551-5012. You can also email us or record a voice memo and send it to alphachat at ft.com or tweet us. I'm at Shannon Pry, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L. And Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. And anybody thinking about cyber hacking Alpha Chat will have second thoughts because you will come face to face with the amazing Amy Keen, who doesn't just produce and edit Alpha Chat and make Shannon and me sound good every week. She's also our bodyguard. Thanks so much for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. Join us again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. <laughs>